Pastor Bud Palmberg will be preaching for us today in just a moment. And just a little word about him. Uh, he used to be the pastor here. Uh, I would consider him the patriarch of this great church. And uh, he really laid down a foundation that we are all sort of living in now. And so I really appreciate him. But the thing that I appreciate about him so much uh, is that uh, he's been such a gentleman. Uh, in our denomination, we have this uh, policy called covenant finality or courteous finality. And what that means is that whenever a new pastor comes, the old one has to go. And they have to break communication and ties and hopefully move away far away. And that's to try to uh, give uh, the church a fresh start. And to um, uh, it's a move uh, to be healthy. And so there was some anxiety on my part when I first came. And there was prayer. And I really felt guidance from God to, uh, to do church with Bud and Donna here. And, uh, and so uh, we met and we prayed and uh, uh, sort of said yes to God together, both of us submitting to what we felt was God's way here for our church. And I'm so thankful that we did that. And part of that uh, journey included a prayer that I felt I received from God, the, uh, the prayer of inheritance that Elijah prayed to God uh, to inherit Elisha's ministry. Uh, he asked for a double portion, which doesn't mean double. It just means I want to inherit uh, the land, the double portion of the land, which would signify um, the main inheritor. And so I prayed to inherit Bud's ministry here. And Ever since that prayer, God's been faithful, and I've been losing my hair ever since. <laughs> All that was set up for that joke, just so you know. <laughs> uh, but before uh, Bud comes up and tells us the story of Samson, we have another storyteller, uh, Bob. And we talk about people who've been here for a while, who've built the church. Well, Bob is one of those people, except he literally built this church physically. So, Bob, come on up and tell us. A story. My wife and I came to this denomination and church about 60 years ago. The church was uh, the focus of our spiritual and social life. The church was much more ethnic in those days than it is now with a definite Swedish lilt. If you ask him, I'm sure you can get Bud to sing from the pulpit in Swedish. <laughs> As our children grew, we became aware of the North Pacific Conference's strong support of camping as a time-tested method of evangelism. We even had a camp Sunday. The primary source of support for camping came from the covenant men. That was both hands-on and, fin and uh, financial support. There were four camps in the conference, three in, around Seattle and one in Oregon, which was a real downer for the Oregon people. Our children got the benefit of the Circle C Ranch near Leavenworth, which had been built by the covenant men. Fast forward to the 1980s, our kids were teenagers and I was privileged to be on the executive board of the North Pacific Conference of Covenant Churches, even though I wasn't a Swede. 
The executive board is responsible for management of the affairs of the conference. One day at a conference board meeting, we were struggling with the issue of funding church planting, and it, we weren't, didn't have enough money. Later the same day, the board was presented with a request for a million dollars for camps. They, their timing couldn't have been worse. I can remember distinctly when one of the board members, Dick Sundholm, who's an imposing man with a full beard, looks every bit the Viking, turned to me and said something like, we've got to get rid of them and have one. This view was supported by the board, and they ultimately asked the two of us if we could see if we could make it happen. There was a caveat by the board, which we gulped about. They wanted 10% of the sale of the, the camp properties to go to the conference for church planning. The decision by the executive board to sell all of the camps and have one unleashed some wrath and a host of issues. Marketing the camp properties, what type of camp was needed, where to build the new camp, convincing those who had a vested interest in the present camps, gaining the support of the covenant men, members at large, site planning, do we continue with horses? Should we be on a lake? How big should it be? Who to build it? And so on. To succeed, the project needed the support of the governor, the city of Des Moines, Washington State Parks, some members of the legislature, Thurston County, the Covenant Men, and the people in the churches in the conference, to name a few. Dick and his family had the lifelong involvement with Covenant Beach in Des Moines, whereas our involvement was with Circle C Ranch over near Leavenworth. At times we despaired, since there was acrimonious opposition from more than one place. We were sometimes personally vilified at church meetings. Then big and little miracles began to occur which is what this story is all about. There were people in the conference that caught the vision. People's hearts and opinions were changed, and we got support. The Lord seemed to bring just the right people to solve the issues. As miracles of support grew, and we, we were left with the conclusion that the decision by the board to take 10% of the proceeds for church planting was blessed by the Holy Spirit. And this seemed to bring uh, all sorts of miracles. For me personally, it is an item of joy as I saw Pastor Bud baptize two of my children at the camp, my grandchildren at the camp, and another one spent three summers on the staff there. It also had a positive effect on my grandchildren who loved the camp. Next time you are at Circles at uh, Cascades Camp, a thousand acre self-supporting premier Christian camp, known that all this came about because of the intervention of the Holy Spirit.
Thank you for listening to my story. And now Pastor Bud is going to deal with the devious, nagging Delilah and the naive Samson. So hear the word of the Lord from Judges 16, 15 to 20. Then Delilah said to him, How can you say I love you when you don't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day, and he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave the seven braids of his hair and so began to sub subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake them free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The word of the Lord. Before I began the sermon, well over 50 years ago, my wife and I were serving a church in western Illinois when at the door one of the people I'd never seen before came by and introduced himself. I said, what was your name? And he said, dings, ding, 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 ding. I spent the next week with the power company and the water company trying to find a new resident by the name of ding, ding, ding. Little did I know that Bob lived here, was in Chicago on business for Boeing, <coughs> and was visiting our church. And that was the beginning, since he was on the pastoral search committee, for my ever getting here. So I'm indebted to him. I'm indebted to him for so many, many things. One more thing. I had a very large pulpit and on that pulpit was a small uh, clock. The battery died on that clock, and I made the comment that the battery had died. And Bob, who loves to tease me about how long I preach, the next Sunday had put a calendar on my <laughs> pulpit and said, perhaps this will help you. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Our pastor has established a theme that we have been following for a few weeks now called imperfect. Cleverly, it says, I am, I am, and then a slash and said perfect, like I'm perfect or imperfect. Since the theme is imperfect, I get the chance as a poster boy for the imperfect to preach. Following the conquest of the Holy Land and the death of Moses and Joshua, Israel was really leaderless. And so God raised up a succession of people that were called judges to give guidance. And as Pastor Julie said last Sunday and showed you a graph, there was a sad succession of cycles that took place. Israel would be faithful and blessed of God. They would begin to become complacent, assuming the gift of God. Complacency became indifference. Indifference became compromise. Compromise became disobedience and moral decline. And as a result of their decisions and walking away from God's blessing, the foreign oppressors would come in as a consequence, and they would then be in terrible shape. They would cry out to God for help and for deliverance, and God in His mercy would raise up another judge, deliver them again. And then the whole cycle was repeated. Seven times that cycle was repeated. Samson was the last of the judges that we have record of. He was a very different person with very different results than the other judges. When you read of Ehud, the judge, it says that his service and ministry produced 80 years of rest. Deborah, the woman judge, leader of Israel, her ministry produced 40 years of peace. Gideon, his service resulted in 40 years of quiet. But you do not read of any rest or peace or quiet from Samson's ministry. He did not deliver the people of Israel from the enemy. He did deliver himself into the hands of the enemy. How could that be? When you read in chapter 13 of his coming birth, it says that his mother was sterile. And there came a visitor from heaven and said she was going to have a child. And when her husband found out she was going to have a child, he prayed the prayer every one of us as parents ought to pray. Lord, teach us how to bring up this boy who is to be born. So Samson was set apart even before his birth. He was to become what was called a Nazarite. And the Nazarite had four particular vows. He had the vow of no wine or strong drink. He had the vow of no razor coming upon his head. 
He had the vow of keeping himself from unclean bodies, from dead. He had the vow to be holy unto the Lord, to be separated into the service of God, separated from a life, anything in the life that would be incompatible with his service to God. And so it says in chapter 13, he grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. In fact, four times, the record states that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Humanly speaking, he was also unique. He is known as a man of enormous strength. I remember all the flannel graphs when I was a child, or all of the Sunday school papers that would tell the story of Samson. And he always looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Amazing. He seems to have started out well. Exploits are a mixture of grim humor and fierce power. He was feared by his enemies because of his courage and his strength and some of the wild and crazy ways in which he punished the Philistines. As long as Samson was faithful to his vows and obedient to God, he was a man of might and power and the spirit would come upon him. But what happened to him when we find him in the lap of Delilah? How did the consecrated life come to be desecrated like that? If you read the story, you realize it came gradually, a little by little. You remember that prior to Samson's birth, it tells us in Philipp and Judges 13.1, again the Israelites did evil in the sights of the Lord. Again. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now the Philistines were an advanced civilization, settled mostly on the coast of Palestine, a little bit north of Gaza uh, at that time. And they were also cruel and oppressive. But they were also very smart. When they would conquer a tribe or a nation, instead of imprisoning them or killing them, as was the custom of so many cultures in that day, instead, they would try to integrate them, to take them in assimilation until the conquered people had lost their identity and became sort of pseudo-Philistines. Well, one day Samson saw a Philistine woman and he said, I want to marry her. And he told his parents, I want to marry that Philistine woman. And his parents were not shocked. It was fairly common in that day and age as an act of assimilation. They did say to him, well, Samson, can't you find a good-looking Israeli? But he said, I want that one, the Philistine woman. And so plans were made, and it became a reality. It indicated to me that Samson was willing to compromise. He was separated, separated unto God. But Samson said, oh, I've got my needs. I've got my preferences. I've got my wants. 
He justified this little disobedience to a vow. He rationalized, this way I'll have an in with the Philistines. He didn't see himself as compromised. And so he fasted, feasted, and he partied with the enemies of God's people. And his vow of separation had lost its meaning. Chapter 14 tells an amazing story of his battle with a lion when he was on his way to a party. He killed that lion with his bare hands. You say, oh, come on now. Now, wait a minute. You've seen the paper in the last few weeks about the young man that killed that mountain lion that attacked him with his bare hands. Samson tore that lion up, and then he went on his way to the party. Later, when he's going, and by the way, the parties lasted for seven days, when he was later on his way to the party, he saw that bees had set up a hive inside the lion's carcass. There was honey there. Without hesitation, Samson forgot his vow, denied his vows of not touching a dead thing, and scooped the honey out of this hive and ate it. Compromise has the effect of an anesthesia. He didn't see it. He didn't recognize it. And that seven-day pre-wedding party led to another vow being broken of no wine or strong drink. Now both his hands and his lips are defiled. He's no longer disciplined. He is ruled by impulse. He's no longer God-directed. He's self-directed. The story goes on to tell of some of Samson's degrading associations, degrading relationships with the enemies of God's people. And he seems so unaware. In fact, the Philistine woman that he was wanted to marry, after the seven days of the party, there was all kinds of contests and riddles and so forth, and Samson wound up killing a lot of Philistines, and they gave the woman he wanted to marry to the best man of the wedding party, which didn't please him too much, but it led to his involvement with Delilah. Now, he's no longer separated. He's broken the vow of wine and strong drink. He has broken the vow of touching anything unclean, a dead body. Only one vow left, his hair. That was a symbol that anybody could see. He still had that. He counted on that. The inner vows, they were all broken and gone. But the outer vow, which was visible to others, he seemed to keep. Samson's philandering led to his final degradation. To Samson, the man of power and enormous strength when the Spirit of God was upon him, was no match for Delilah. I have a friend that used to say, if you marry the child of the devil, you better expect trouble from your father-in-law. And that's exactly what happened to Samson. Delilah expresses great love for him. She was good at telling him that. 
but at the same time she expressed great love for him, she was in the employ of the Philistines, who hired her and offered her an enormous amount of money if she would simply find out the secret of his strength. She begged him, I want to know the secret of your strength. She kept wearing him down with her pleading and her tears. And Samson teases her. He toys with her. He tricks her three different times. Verse 7, Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become weak as other men. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he got up and popped those strings like nothing. She whines and complains, Samson, you don't love me. Finally, he says, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become weak as other men. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumped up and broke those new ropes like nothing. Delilah said, until now you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how can you can be tied. And he replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become weak as another man. And then he falls asleep and that's what she does. She weaves his hair into the loom. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumps up and frees himself and defends himself bloodily. And that's when she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me. You haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging and prodding him, day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become weak as other men. The vows now, three of them had been broken. The fourth one was now threatened. And he tells her the secret of his strength with the very words which he had spoken his vow of separation to the Lord. No razor has ever been used on my head because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. Can you believe that? He still saw himself as a Nazarite. He still saw himself as set apart to God. After 20 years of failure, his vows broken, every lustful desire indulged, Samson still viewed himself as somehow God's man, a Nazarite. Well, you know the result. Delilah lulls him to sleep. She got the barber to come in and shave his head. And then for the fourth time, she calls out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. 
He awoke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. And the last words, words of verse 20 are some of the saddest words you can ever hear. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Well, you know the outcome. He was taken prisoner. He was blinded. He was chained to a grinding wheel like a beast. His compromise had led to captivity. He was blinded now instead of sighted. He was in bondage instead of in freedom. He had been free to choose, as all of us are free to choose. But he was not free from the consequences of those choices. Neither are we. Did you know that Samson's name means sun or brightness? What a strange commentary on this blind man grinding at the wheel. Living in darkness and weakness. There's a closing story, I know it. One more scene in Samson's story, the God of grace does answer his final prayer. He prays, God, give me my strength. But he used that strength once again for a self-centered purpose, bringing down the temple and killing so many Philistines and himself. But following Samson's death, it does not record years of peace or rest or quiet as it had regarding the other judges. Samson's legacy is in the 25th chapter of chapter, 25th verse of chapter 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. This man of heritage, of strength, of promise, allowed his usefulness to God and his people to become compromised and wasted. It's a sign of God's grace and love for us that when we stray, when we wander away or compromise our commitment to him, it's a sign of God's grace that the light begins to dim in our lives. The consecrated life that is compromised becomes dull. And our time with our Lord and with his word and with his people becomes less sweet. Even growing in discomfort and sometimes leads to absence from his body. In my 50 years as a pastor, I have seen people who have been involved in the life of the church who have a clear positive witness to Christ gradually become less frequent in attendance and that's usually a sign that there's some kind of a problem because they are finding the congregation of the church the fellowship of the gospel the word of God to be uncomfortable in their compromise well today's sad look at Samson has led me to some self-evaluation. 
some self-evaluation of my life and my love and my loyalty. Have I rationalized some compromise? Have you? Do the words, it's no big deal, come to your mind? Everybody's doing it. I have a right to my own will, my own happiness. You know, I just don't see things the way I used to see them. Oh, how I pray that it will never be said of me or of you what was said of Samson. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Oh, but there's grace and glory. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I will restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as snow. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Once again, take up my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest to your soul. That's the good news in a bad story. Father in heaven, what a cautionary tale the story of Moses or of Samson really is for us. How the temptation to be compromised and the contagious compromise of our culture is real. Thank you, O Lord, for the dimming of sight and the loss of joy that causes us to turn once again to you. And thank you that you welcome us with open arms. In Jesus' name, amen.